0: Fill us, O Lord, with your Holy Spirit, so that we might hear your word clearly, understand it fully, receive it faithfully and obey it joyfully, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. When an accusation is made by one against another, it often tells us more about the accuser than the accused, and that's especially true if motives are mixed with jealousy or resentment. And that's clearly the case in the accusations against Stephen. Luke tells us in chapter 5 that the high priest and all his associates were filled with jealousy because the apostles were healing many and were highly regarded by the people. And now here's Stephen, a deacon and servant in the church. He's full of faith and the Holy Spirit He's full of God's grace and power. And we read in chapter 6, verse 8, that he's doing great wonders and signs among the people. So not surprisingly, opposition arises from members of the synagogue who begin to argue with Stephen. But again, not surprisingly, in chapter 6, verse 10, we read, They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So they seize Stephen and bring him before the Sanhedrin, the court of Jewish law. And there they make false accusation against him. They accuse him of blasphemy. Blasphemy against Moses and God and blasphemy against the temple and the law. Then in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asks Stephen the obvious question. He says, are these charges true? Although the question might have been obvious, the answer he received was not entirely expected. Stephen recounts to them Israel's history and God's faithfulness. And that was no surprise, it was well-established practice in Jewish tradition. What they didn't expect was his accusation against them of repeating the sins of their forefathers. Now if this was Stephen's defence, he certainly was not looking for an acquittal. What he said enraged the Sanhedrin and guaranteed his condemnation and his execution. So what has Stephen said that made them so angry? And how is it possible that religious rulers can get things so horribly wrong? And get things wrong is exactly what they did. For Stephen makes it clear that they've completely misunderstood Moses and the law and God and the temple. And you can't be more fundamentally wrong than they were. Have a look from chapter 7, verse 2. There Stephen describes the time of the patriarchs. In verse 2 he says that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. His point seems to be that even though God promised to Abraham descendants and a land, God turns up in Macedonia. Clearly, God is not a local deity. He is not confined by tribal boundaries. God shows up to whomever, whenever, and wherever he wills. The same point is made in verses 9 to to 19 about Israel being in Egypt. God's saving grace is sovereign, and it's centred around a purpose and not a place. God cannot be confined in any way, and he certainly will not be contained geographically. As for blasphemy against Moses, Stephen makes it clear from verses 20 to 34 that Moses was set apart and called by God. And yet God's people, Israel, well, they rejected Moses to the one who was sent by God himself to be their ruler and deliverer, they say in verses 27 and 35, they say, well, who who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, the obvious answer is that God did. If anyone's in the habit of blaspheming against Moses, it's not Stephen, it's Israel. And from there, things don't get better, they get worse. Stephen says, verse 36, it was Moses who led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs at the Red Sea and in the wilderness. Verse 37, it was Moses who promised them a prophet who would speak God's word and in God's name. Verse 38, it's Moses who received at Mount Sinai from God living words to pass on to them the law. This is the very same Moses whom Stephen says in verse 39 Our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. If there's blasphemy against Moses, and indeed the law, then it comes not from Stephen, but from Israel. Verse verse 43. It is Israel who lifted up the shrine of Moloch and the star of Rephan, idols that they had made to worship. And though such idolatry might have started in the wilderness and kept them there for 40 years, it continued even after they settled in the Promised Land, and eventually it led to their exile in Babylon. Blasphemy against God and Moses was not the practice of Stephen and the church, but the historical pattern of Israel and their forefathers. And then there's the accusation that Stephen had blasphemed against the temple. So what does Stephen do? Well, he points them again to their scriptures and their history. The tabernacle, that mobile meeting place with God, was built by Moses, according to the pattern that God had given him. And it was Solomon who built the temple in Jerusalem as a permanent house for God. But Stephen reminds them once again in verse 48 that God is not limited or constrained to place. The Most High, well, he doesn't live in houses made by human hands. The question first asked by Isaiah, and now by Stephen in verse 49, is how can the creator of all things be contained in a material house, fashioned by the hands of men? Heaven is God's throne, not the temple, and earth is his footstool. And there ended the history lesson and Stephen's defence. And if the Sanhedrin were in any doubt about what Stephen was implying, what he says next from verses 51 to 53, it takes away any possibility of confusion and turns the tables on his accusers. In verse 51, he describes the Sanhedrin as stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. And that's the very same accusation that God himself made against Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. Their disobedience and their unresponsiveness to God's revelation was like that of uncircumcised Gentiles who knew nothing of God's revealed will. Stephen is saying that nothing has changed. Just as their forefathers had resisted God, they're too still resisting the Holy Spirit. Verse 52, their forefathers had persecuted every prophet who predicted the coming of the Christ, the Righteous One. And when he did come, the chief priests now standing in the Sanhedrin accusing Stephen, they themselves betrayed and murdered the Christ, the Messiah, the Righteous One. Verse 53, though they received the law, they certainly hadn't obeyed it. Well, as I said earlier, accusations often say more about the accuser than the accused. It seems pretty clear that though they accused Stephen of blaspheming against God and Moses, the temple and the law, it is in fact they themselves who are guilty of such things. And guilt and self-righteousness Well, it made them furious, and you could see it on their face. While Stephen had the face of an angel, well, they're gnashing their teeth. While Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, was looking to heaven and seeing the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God's glory, well, they're covering their ears. They're yelling at the top of their voices. And while Stephen prayed for his accusers and his persecutors, Well, they're stoning him to death. And there's Saul, a witness of these things, giving his approval. So there's the story of Stephen and Sanhedrin. And if I ask you, well, whose side are you on? You would obviously answer, well, Stephen's, of course, he's the good guy, isn't he? And he is the good guy. That's obvious from the way Luke tells the story And it's obvious from our vantage 2,000 years later. But how do we know that we're not making similar mistakes that the Sanhedrin made? As I asked earlier, how how is it possible that the religious rulers who had the scriptures, they had the prophets, the temple, the law, how can they be so wrong for so long and yet see themselves as mainstream and orthodox? After all, that's what we are. We're mainstream and orthodox, after all. We're Anglicans. We're a cultural and religious institution. So is it possible that we too are 21st century Sanhedrin? I don't think so. But I do want to suggest a couple of areas where we can run the risk of making the same mistakes as the Sanhedrin. Firstly, we can make the mistake of thinking... That God in our lives can be confined to a day and a building. Have a look at this building, this this structure. I mean, it's magnificent. And it's dedicated and set apart to the glory of God. But is there anything especially holy about it? Do Episcopal words of consecration make it holy? Does God have a special presence here? Of course, we don't have to come here to meet with God. We can do that anywhere, anytime. We come here to do what we can't do on our own. We come here to offer God our corporate worship. We come here to encourage one another in the faith and to build one another up. We come here so that together we might learn from God's Word and be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And finally, we come here together so that in communion we might share in the fellowship of Christ's body and blood as we share in the fellowship of bread and wine. If God is especially here in any sense at all, it's because his people are here, gathered to worship in spirit and truth as we are. It's not the purpose of this building that makes it holy, but the presence of God in our midst as we gather in his name. And if we misunderstand that, then we'll look for awe and wonder in a building rather than in God. We'll look for salvation in rules and ritual rather than in grace and mercy. And if we do that, we'll be more like the Sanhedrin than Stephen. The second way that we can be more like the Sanhedrin than Stephen is when God's word never actually changes us. We can hear the words of the prophets, the law, Jesus and his apostles from Sunday to Sunday. And yet from week to week, we might always be the same. Never feeling challenged or convicted, not growing in our faith, never learning more or having our beliefs beliefs corrected never wanting to live a life of faith if it means being less comfortable in our circumstance or less certain in our future. If our religion makes us comfortable and complacent, then we're still living in Christendom, in a mainstream orthodoxy perhaps, but asleep in the light. It's the words of the prophets that should be ringing in our ears. It's the message of the gospel that should be transforming our lives. And it's the witness of the martyrs that should be clearly before our eyes. Stephen's martyrdom is not just an inspiration for us to admire. It's a warning for us to heed. It's a faith for us to emulate. For just as Stephen's death was the beginning of a great movement against the church in the first century... So too is the church experiencing a similar movement in the 21st century. It's already well and truly underway in the Middle East, in Northern Africa, and in many parts of Asia. And the question that we have to answer is, do we like the Sanhedrin? Do we side with religion and the world and grasp at a cultural Christendom? Or do we like Stephen, speak gospel truth to religion and the world, and be willing to bear its repudiation. For it's Christ who says to his church, they will hate you because they first hated me. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also because of my name. Now that was Stephen's experience, and we have no reason to expect that it couldn't possibly be ours also. Now, I realise that that doesn't sound like anything to look forward to. So I really do want to encourage you. And I want to do that by pointing out what should be obvious, obvious, but often is not. And it concerns Stephen. You see, Stephen, well, he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't even an elder in the church. He was a deacon. He was a servant in the church. His job was to wait on the tables and to distribute food to the widows. And yet here he is before the Sanhedrin with a grasp of biblical theology that he didn't get from theological college and with a boldness that he didn't get by fearing men. My point is that Stephen, well, he's just like you and I. He's a very ordinary Christian with a very extraordinary God. It wasn't his training and his position that enabled him to do what he did. He did what he did because he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit he spoke with great wisdom and great courage. And that's not a special gift that he had. That's not a gift that you and I can't have. What Stephen had was a trust in the promise that Jesus makes To all his disciples. Jesus says don't worry about how you'll defend yourself or what you'll say. Because the Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say. So be encouraged and be bold. Be prepared to share the hope that you have just as you have been doing. And as to what we should be doing. Well Jesus told a parable to those who thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And the parable was for those who were waiting for the return of a king, just as we are. And the counsel given to them was, we'll get about your business until I come. Use the gifts that you've been given to advance the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And how do we do that? Well, as Paul says to the Thessalonians who were facing opposition and hoping that Jesus would return soon, he says, don't expect peace and safety, but do expect Jesus to return at any time. Be ready for that, hat and don't be taken by surprise. We're the children of light, we're the children of the day, so let's not walk in darkness and let's not be asleep in the day. Instead, be awake and sober. Put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. Acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and admonish you. Hold them in high regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other Warn the idle and the disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak and be patient with everyone. Don't pay back wrong for wrong. Always strive to do what's good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstance. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, none of that, as they say, is rocket science. It's just good counsel. I don't, however, suggest for a moment that it's easy or natural. But I am sure it's what God calls us to when he says, Occupy until I come. I am sure that that's what it means to live faithfully as we wait for the blessed hope. And God's promise is that as we do, then God himself, the God of peace, will sanctify us through and through and our whole spirit, soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's not about us striving in our own strength to be good. For the one who calls us is faithful and he will do it. Let us pray. Thank you, our Father that you have called us out of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we would be wise to serve your church, bold to declare your gospel, and humble to suffer for the sake of your kingdom. Thank you for Stephen, the first of many saints, whose life and death have both borne testimony to our Lord Jesus. We ask our Father that we too would be faithful and not ashamed. For we know in whom we have believed and we're convinced that he's able to guard what we've entrusted to him for that very day. These things we pray in the name of our Saviour. Amen.